visiting with us. There's a Bible in the rack in front of you, and the page number is there. Um, we are we're we're kind of opening this book up and uh, taking time and looking through um, and kind of exploring it, uh, particularly from the perspective of looking at the things that distract us from Christ. And so I'm going to give. I, 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 this is one of those. It's one of those sermons. They happen every once in a while. Um, where I'm not entirely sure where we're going to land. We're kind of in a holding pattern over the scriptures and hoping and praying that we land properly. So it's going to be one of two things. I'll just go ahead and warn you ahead of time. I will suddenly go, and that's far enough, and pray, and the sermon will be over. Um, Or there won't be an ending at all, and I'll just go, ah, we'll pick it up next week. Um, But uh, so that happens every once in a while. This is one of those, it's one of those moments in in the epistles that are just so extraordinary. There's so much packed in, and I don't really know where to distinguish this from that. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna dive in. We're gonna see what happens. Uh, we're gonna start in um, we're gonna start in verse 15. Galatians chapter one and verse 15. Last week we read a large portion. I'm gonna read a large portion again um, to give this the context. The apostle Paul says this. He says, "When he who had set me apart before I was born," so he's talking about Christ or talking about God. And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So Paul was on his way to Damascus. He was a persecutor of the church. He was going there. He'd been given permission to imprison Christians or the followers of the way. They weren't called Christians yet. Um, And on his way, Jesus reveals himself to him. Paul is miraculously converted. He becomes a, a follower of Christ. Um, there's, uh, he loses his eyesight. His eyesight is healed in Damascus. And then he adds this thing. He says, and so I didn't immediately consult with anyone. Instead, I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, that's an interesting side note. Um, it's weird because Arabia and Damascus were actually ruled by the same king for only a very short period in the first century. So we can place this event to, to somewhere, around, uh, somewhere around before 44 AD. All right, so we know that this is, that was how it was going because after that, Arabia became, became kind of a uh, raiding nuisance and the Romans had to crush them. Um, but uh, then after three years, so he moves back to Damascus. Three years, I went up to Jerusalem to meet Kephas. That's Simon Peter. All right, Kepha is Aramaic for rock, Petros, Peter. All right, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So he says, I went up. I just wanted to talk to Peter. Now, there's a very specific reason he wanted to talk to Peter. Um, but uh, in this, I'm writing to you before God. I do not lie. Now he talks to. Peter, and I'm going to add a little bit of coloring to this, he talks to Peter, um, he doesn't tell the whole story here, okay? Um, apparently, in, if you read the book of Acts, chapter 9, you discover that when he wasn't talking to Peter and James, Paul was out in the marketplace causing trouble with the Greek-speaking Jews, to the point that Peter and James had to take him to Caesarea Maritima, which is on the coast, put him on a boat, and send him home so that nobody killed him. This is, this is Paul. People are sending him out of town a lot. In fact, he had to leave Damascus because a bunch of people wanted to kill him. So he's an interesting person. I would have enjoyed talking to him. Um, 
He winds up getting stoned twice, thrown overboard. There's a bunch of stuff that happens in his life. So he, he then, so the scriptures say, three years I went to Jerusalem. Um, he says, in what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie, because apparently people had been accusing him of not doing this. He hadn't gone to meet with Peter and James. Uh, and then verse 21, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia is where he's from. So Paul is from the, the, the town of Tarsus. Tarsus is in Cilicia, which, by the way, is right next door to Galatia. All right, so um, he's, he lived much closer to the Galatians than you realize. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Now, in between here, there's another moment with, uh, with uh, Paul. He goes down to Jerusalem. He brings an offering down there. I'm going to talk about that next week um, from Acts. And then he goes back to Damascus. And he's hanging out with this guy in chapter 2 and verse 1. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Now, this is, um, now he's going to fast forward through the whole bit of Paul being Paul. All right, Paul, in the book of Acts, he starts out as kind of this troublemaker against against the, the against the christians then he converts and then there's little bits and pieces about his history and then in acts chapter 13 he goes off on this big uh, missions trip with this guy barnabas now barnabas is going to be our focus next week because um, he's one of the most interesting people in the bible that never says anything um, he, there's not a single recorded word of barnabas in the entire bible um, but he, he's kind of Paul's mentor, kind of. His name is Joseph, um, Joseph Barnabas. He's from, uh, he's from Cyprus, the island of Cyprus. And he's got a really interesting story. So he, and, he gets Paul, and they go off on this mission journey. They travel to Cyprus. They travel along Asia Minor. And then they settle back into Damascus, in the, in the, or into Antioch, which is in northern Syria, up by Aleppo, if you're, you keep track of any, anything going on in Syria. Um, and so he is, uh, he's in Syria, and the book of Acts says, and they were there not, not a few days, or 14 years, eh, not a few days. Um, so he's there for 14 years, and then he goes, I went up into Jerusalem with Barnabas, chapter 2, verse 1, taking Titus along with me, another, another is a young man. Um, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So, so he goes and he speaks to the Jewish Christians, making sure what he's doing, preaching to non-Jews, is okay. They don't make him circumcised Titus. This is an evidence they thought it was okay. In verse 4, Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we, might, that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they, may, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, they didn't tell me I had to do anything else. I was doing good. 
On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Kiva and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now we're going to get into what happens next because they go back on their word. I don't want to get into that today. Um, but uh, let's go ahead to the, word, to the Lord in a word of prayer real quick, and then we're just going to unpack this a little bit. Father, your written word shows us often your perspective filtered through the experiences, the hearts, and the words of your people. And Lord, as we come to what the Apostle Paul writes, help us to see through his words Christ and his grace upon us. We pray that you open our eyes, our hearts, our minds. May we give, give us clarity of thought and clear paths for us to follow Christ. We pray all this in his name, by your precious and holy spirit. Amen. So Saul, or Shaul, which is his name in Hebrew, Aramaic, um, is a Paul is a Greek-speaking Jew from southeastern Turkey. That's an interesting combination. Um, and uh, he's a Roman citizen. That's why he has the name Paulos or Paul. Some people mistakenly believe that there's somewhere in the book of Acts where God changes his name. It, it doesn't. It's just at one point he's Saul and the next minute he's Paul. Um, there's a line, Luke says, this is Saul, who was also known as Paul, and after that he just calls him Paul. Um, and that appears to be his Roman name. Now this is a very common thing with what are called Hellenic Jews. Jews that speak Greek and are part of the Roman Empire tend to have two names. Um, they have a, a Jewish name, which is usually Aramaic or Hebrew, and then they have a Roman name, which is either, Ro either Latin or Greek. Um, and this is because when you were a citizen of Rome, you, got to, you had to assign yourself to a family and an association. Um, it's called Noman Conventions. There's a, there's a real weird thing about Romans. Um, they're like, we want your names to work a certain way. Um, but Paul is called to a ministry. Um, he starts ministering first to just... Greek-speaking Jews, and then makes the leap from Greek-speaking Jews to non-Jews, the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. And he makes this leap over the course of 14 years. Now, he's explaining this to the Galatians because he wants the Galatians to understand that he has a slightly different authority than the other apostles. Unlike the other apostles who were all eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and, and death and burial and resurrection, Paul wasn't there for any of that. Um, in fact, he's significantly younger than the other apostles. Um, he's, he's still in a kind of a serving capacity when the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the Jewish leaders, they, they stone Stephen, who was one of the leaders of the early church. Um, the apostle Paul, who was then at the time Saul, um, is just standing there holding coats. That's his job. He doesn't even get to throw rocks. He just has to hold coats. 
Um, I went to a stoning, and all I got to do was hold these coats. Um, so, so this is so this is this is who he was, and and he becomes very very zealous in his Jewish belief, um, in his his obsession with this idea that the Christians are corrupting the true religion. And we need to be careful not to judge Paul's motivation for this. Because if you've been taught that your religion is the same thing that was delivered to Moses by God himself 1,500 years before, and that you are the remnant of the ones who worship the one true God, and this wacko group of people start saying that some Galilean Jew was the Messiah, you'd probably get a little upset too. And he is a bit of a religious fanatic, and I'm not justifying his actions, but this is who he is. He's zealous in the traditions of his fathers. But then he becomes a believer, and he begins to preach the gospel, immediately starts talking to people that, like him, speak Greek. Now, Greek-speaking Jews were somewhere between 10 and 20% of the population of the Roman Empire. Now, people don't realize that. We think of the Jews as a small little group that only lived in Palestine. That, that's not the truth of the Roman world. The Jews, um, in fact, when Julius Caesar um, crossed the Rubicon, the famous moment where he challenges the Roman Republic and has them declared dictator for life, uh, Suetonius actually records that the reason that they allowed him to cross the Rubicon was that the Senate was terrified that the Jews, who Julius Caesar had gotten special privileges for, would rise up and revolt and kill them all if they didn't let Caesar come into the city. This is, they're a formidable minority in the Roman Empire. And Peter, Paul is part of that. He goes and speaks first to the Jewish Christian, uh, Jewish, uh, the Greek-speaking Jews, and when they don't listen, then he begins to speak to the Gentiles. And, and he's doing this because Simon Peter was doing this. Peter had received a vision in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, that he was to speak to the Gentiles and share the gospel with the Gentiles. And Paul believes that if God is truly a gracious God, then his grace is not, grace is not dictated by ethnicity or language or whether or not you are circumcised. Now, this is Paul's great idea. Now, we believe he got it from Christ, but it's still what revolutionizes the church. The church goes from being a Jewish sect who believed that Jesus was the Messiah to a world-spanning faith that has no respect of ethnic background, language, gender, slave or free, it becomes a whole new thing, what God had promised in the kingdom of heaven. And everybody has no problem with that for 14 years. It's not an issue. And then suddenly things change. And why they change is, is the question that I got hung up on this week. Because as a historian, I'm not content to just say, and then things changed. Historians never ever just go, eh, that's the way it was. We always ask why. Why has this happened? What happened that took the, the Jews in Palestine from being just okay with what Paul was doing? Yeah, whatever, just you know, keep yourself under control, to what Paul calls false brethren trying to lead us into slavery. What changed? Well, something very interesting happened. Um, in the book of Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 11, I believe it is, we have this, this bizarre moment where out of nowhere you get this record of the death of Herod, um, uh, uh, Herod Agrippa. 
who was, uh, was one of the, the kings. He was the last Herodian king, if you really care. Um, what does Herodian king mean? It means he called himself Herod. Um, he dies in 44 AD. He dies in a particularly gruesome way. And when he dies, uh, you can look it up. I won't explain it to you. But, um, but when he dies, the Roman, uh, the Roman authorities say, okay, that's it. No more kings for you. It's time for you to be under a, a Roman governor, a procurator. Um, and so they, they establish a proc, uh, um, proconsular, um, proconsular uh, I can't remember the term they use for it. We're going to call it a province. But anyway, um, they establish this thing and they call it, this is Judea. And they put a Roman governor in place. First Roman governor lasts a couple years. He thinks that he's a prophet. He tells people he's going to part the Jordan River. He's a weird dude. We don't know anything about him. Um, the second Roman governor, however, is a guy by the name of Tiberius Julius Alexander. Now, isn't that a great Roman name, Tiberius Julius Alexander? He is the nephew of the Jewish historian and philosopher Philo. Um, and his father is a prominent leader of the Jewish society, the Jewish community in, um, in Alexandria, Egypt. Tiberius Julius Alexander is a Jew. He is a Greek-speaking Jew. He governs Judea for a couple of years. He is well known for being this extraordinary person. He goes off and he fights in the Parthian Wars. They fight against the Persians. And then... In the AD 60s, the Jews rise in revolt against the Roman uh, authority. And Vespasian, a Roman general, calls in his best uh, strategos, um, best commander, field commander, to lead the armies that will destroy the Jewish rebellion. Tiberius Julius Alexander. You guys have heard of the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. The commander of that army was a Greek-speaking Jew. In the 14 years, now that is years in the future yet, but in the 14 years between the time that the, the Apostle Paul leaves Jerusalem and goes to Antioch and then becomes a missionary and starts going and preaching to the Greek-speaking Jews and the Gentiles. In that 14 years, something happens. And we don't know historically exactly what happens. But the Jewish people begin to move retrograde. They begin to think that maybe this idea of being integrated into the Roman Empire is not such a great idea. And they start to separate themselves. For a hundred years, they had become part of the Roman Empire. They were becoming a part of it to the point that some of them were actually having their circumcision surgically reversed so that they could go to the gymnasium and exercise with the Greeks because they went to the gym naked. That's all you need to know. All right, um, so, so all of this is going... Suddenly, they start to go retrograde. We don't know exactly what happened, although there are a series of, of small events that may have occurred. And now, the Jewish identity is starting to be reasserted. And as it's being reasserted, people begin to long more and more. Every time there is tension between the Jews and the rulers of, of the world, the, the non-Jewish world, every time there's tension, there begins to be messianic movements all over the place. They start to call for messiahs. Um, in AD 130, there'll be one called uh, Johannem, uh, uh, yeah, uh, 
Ben, uh, not Ben Zakai, that's the other guy. I'm getting, you guys don't care. Um, um, Bar Chokba. Uh, but the, there, there will be these other messiahs that will rise up. Um, well, there, there seems to be this longing for this messiah. And there's this group of Jews in Jerusalem who claim to already know the messiah. The book of Acts says that the Pharisees begin to become believers at this point. The Pharisees start to enter. These are the false brethren that the Apostle Paul is talking about. In Acts chapter 15, it says the party of the Pharisees. I'll just read it for you so you can, so you know I'm not making something up. Because you never know if I am. I could be. I make up pronunciation and names all the time. Um... Some men, chapter 15, verse 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, this is in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders to ask about this question. And so they being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. So they're walking through telling everybody how Gentiles came to believers. They brought great joy to all the brothers. They're having this great journey. It's just fantastic, right? And the apostles were, and, and so they all get together and they're going to talk of this. But verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the Torah, the law of Moses. So Pharisees who had entered the church, who are already retrograde against the Romans, they're already starting to pull themselves out of the Roman world. They go, no, 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 none of this Gentile conversion nonsense. If you want to be faithful to the God of the Torah, you've got to become a Jew. And that means you've got to be circumcised. That means you've got to be Torah obedient. You need to become bar mitzvot, the sons of the covenant. That's what you have to become. That's what bar mitzvah means. It means son of the covenant. Bat mitzvah means daughter of the covenant. Daughter of the commandment. Um, bar mitzvot, son of the covenants. Um, and they start to gain traction. Because I got news for you guys. You may not realize this, but you need to be aware of this. It is very easy for current events to affect theology. People look around and they go, oh, look at this is happening and that is happening. And they go, they start to resort and reorganize faith to make it fit whatever is going on. When I was a kid, it was, it was, oh man, the ten nations of Daniel are going to rise and Antichrist is on his way and you better buy our book today so you know how to escape. And it was, it was 85 reasons Jesus was coming back in 1985. When that one failed, 88 reasons Jesus was coming back in 1988. And I, was driven, I lived in a, in a world where everybody was worried about this. My grandparents, it wasn't new, my grandparents um, got married at 16 because Israel had become a country, a nation, and they were convinced Jesus was going to show up any day and they were going to have a chance to be together. I mean, this kind of, and it affects our theology. It affects our thinking. And don't think that it doesn't. It absolutely does. Because Paul had been outside of all that. And you need to get this. When Paul comes back to Jerusalem, it's not Paul that's changed. It's the church. 
that has changed. Now that sounds weird. Isn't the outlier always wrong? All right? No, sometimes the outlier is a prophet. Sometimes the outlier is an apostle. And in this case, that's what's going on. I, by the way, am not claiming credit. I am not either of those things. I'm not saying, you know, listen to me no matter what anybody says. There be Kool-Aid. Some of you will recognize that popular reference from the 1970s. Anyway, Paul comes to the church and literally doesn't understand what the issue is. He walks in and goes, what's your problem? He's got this kid, Titus, all right, which is as, as Roman a name as you can get, Titus. All right? He says, hey, look, this kid, no circumcision, no law, law observance, and this guy, he is a faithful follower of Jesus. What's the issue? What's the issue? Living open-handed is scary. Believing that God can do things that you're not comfortable with because of your setting in your current events is hard. The apostles are drawn off by this false teaching. Paul will later say that he has to literally reprove Peter that he takes him aside privately first. He says, Peter, what are you doing? How can you possibly support this? And Peter goes, yeah, yeah, you're right. And then when Peter's in public, he does it again. And that time, Paul stands up and fights him in public. Now, that had to have been a great church service. <laughs> I'm telling you, the Quakers got nothing on the moment when Peter is preaching and Paul stands up and says, you are wrong. And everybody goes, you just see everybody in the pews going, Uh, and, you know, two apostles in the same room, you know, that, that's pretty crazy. And Peter eventually corrects, by the way, first and second Peter, Peter actually admits that he has difficulty staying as, as understanding what Paul says. So, so that they're, they're, they must have been two peas in a pod, those two. Sometimes we need the context, something that is out of our context to illuminate for us what is going wrong in our world. For the early church, it was Paul coming back from a very, very successful missions trip and time in Antioch where the Holy Spirit is at work and Gentiles and Jews. By the way, before he goes on the missions trip, Paul and Barnabas are ministering to Greek-speaking people. The whole reason they're in Antioch is to minister to Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles in Antioch. The, the, the apostles from Jerusalem send Barnabas there, and it's there that they get the name Christians. Not when they're in Jerusalem and they're just a bunch of Jews hanging out. When it's people from all different ethnicities and languages and cultures and backgrounds coming together. Ah, you're no longer Jews. You're those Christ people. Isn't that an extraordinary thought about every time we take that name Christian and recognize that it's a representation of God's grace being bigger than my needs. God's grace being big enough for the needs of others. But those times of transition are frightening. And that's why sometimes we need a witness that is independent 
of our situation. People sometimes ask, why is there a closed canon of the scriptures? Why doesn't God inspire new books for our current situation? Wouldn't it be great if God decided in 2019 to write a book on how to vote in the United States? And we could just go, well, Jesus said in Second Opinions 3.10, wouldn't it be great if every time there was a new situation, we got a new set of instructions? I'm telling you right now, it would be chaos. We need the witness that is independent of our situation, that is the Scriptures. We need to hear God's eternal voice. Now make no mistake, it was spoken into history and context. We have to talk about where Paul is coming from when he writes this. I'm not denying that. But the authority, part of the glory of the authority of Scripture is that it's not incidental. It's not, this is the band-aid for this, this is the band-aid for that, this is five... I despise, guys, I don't mean to upset anybody, but I probably will. I despise lists. Here are seven ways to have a successful marriage. Here are 14 ways to Christian financial freedom. Now, some of you like lists, and that's fine. But I can't stand, if I go visit a church and the pastor starts out with, here are five principles that will bring you happiness in life. I am inclined to leave. All right? Because I didn't come to church to hear you offer me a list of extra biblical things that you picked and chose from the Bible. I want somebody to teach me from the scriptures. I want to hear the scriptures. I went to a church one time where a guy spent an hour and 15 minutes. My daughter fell asleep immediately. My wife went to sleep quickly talking about modernism and postmodernism and how it affects Christianity and how we need to adapt and change and some other nonsense. I don't know what he was talking about. I fell asleep. Which, by the way, postmodernism is an art movement, so I can't really understand how that affected it. I think he meant postmodernity, but um, the, 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 uh, I'm also a grammar Nazi. Um, I don't... I don't want you to come to church asking, oh, pastor, I wish that we would preach five reasons that we could do this, seven reasons we could do that. I find that endlessly boring. I just, that that bores me. What I want to hear is the eternal word of God opened up and illuminated so that I can see what God did so I know he's at work. And that's what Paul does. He comes from the outside of this context and he just goes to the guys, what are you doing? You are allowing your circumstances to control your beliefs. And you are turning to dangerous men that you don't understand because they make you feel comfortable. Because you as Jewish believers, when the Pharisees speak, you tend to bend. By the way, what was Paul? He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee who stopped Phariseeing. And he decided, I'm not going to let this happen. And he withstands them to their face. He fights. He verbally engages with the other apostles because they allowed their context to determine their doctrine. 
I'm already slightly over time, but I just want to give you a couple of little things in our lives that I want to encourage you about. A little bit of practical application here. And you guys know I am infamously not practical. For 150 years, the church of Jesus Christ has backed up every time our society has called us hate mongers, troublemakers, um, narrow-minded, closed-minded, all of these things. And as a result, every time the society does something, we, the church, are always on our heels. And we then decide something goes too far and suddenly we freak out and yell and scream about it. And everybody goes, but you tolerated everything else. You put up with everything else. Why is suddenly this a problem? We draw lines at the weirdest places because we've been pushed over the boundary of biblical faith and then suddenly we go, we've got to fix and we try to swing the other direction. If there is one thing you need to be as a Christian, it is consistently biblical. When I was growing up in the 1970s and 1980s, and this thing is driving me nuts, I'm just going to step on top of it. When I was growing up in the 1970s and 80s, the moral majority and the religious right and all this stuff and voting Republican was equated with being a Christian. And you vote Republican, that's no problem. I probably agree with you mostly politically. Not entirely, but mostly. All right? Um, but you know what? Being a Republican is not the same as being a Christian. Being an American is not the same thing as being a Christian. Speaking English is not the same thing as being, an Amer- as being a Christian. Even, believe it or not, being pro-life is not the same thing as being a Christian. Now there's overlap of those things and we need to stand for truth where truth is, but we need to make sure that our faith is not being guided by our society. We are not... Americans first, we are not white people first, we are not non-Latinos first, except for those that are Latinos, you're Latino first. Now, <laughs> we are Christians first. Capital C, lower B in Baptist, lower A in American, lower R in right wing, all those things, pro-life, lower, lowercase p. We need to understand that. And when society says, why can't you just loosen up a little bit? You say, because God doesn't loosen up a little bit. Why aren't you more tolerant? Why aren't you more open to these things? And I get told that, by the way, on both sides. I have ultra-conservative people who call me a liberal, which makes me laugh. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. And then I have ultra-liberal friends who call me a closed-minded conservative which makes me laugh. Ha, 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 ha. And then I put them in the same room, let them debate, and walk away and get a drink. <laughs> somebody, said, somebody said to me, how can you hold the positions you hold? Because that's what the scriptures say. I love, I love, I love, I love my homosexual friends. I love them. But if they ask me, do I believe that they're living in sin? I always say yes. I love them. I don't wish anything ill upon them. I don't want anything bad to happen to them. I was in a sermon in a church one time when the pastor talked about how all homosexuals should be rounded up and put in an island and left to themselves because eventually they die out because they don't breed. 
I heard that actual phrase. In a Baptist church, I have never wanted to get up and punch somebody in the face so hard outside of driving in Massachusetts. We as Christians cannot allow our society to tell us what... We cannot let our church culture to tell us how to be. My father still doesn't understand how I don't wear a tie and don't use a pulpit. That's okay. That's his thing. One time somebody came into our church and asked us why we, didn't, why we had New International Version Bibles in the racks instead of King James Bibles. And I told the guy that talked to him, I said, the re your response should have been because if we had them dropped from the ceiling, we'd have to pay for concussions. <laughs> we need to be true to who we are as Christians, no matter what happens in society. Let society change, but you stay true to the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as a church, we would be grounded in the rock and that no matter what storm comes, no, what, no matter what crashes against us, we would, be, we would find our hope and our truth and your word to be all that we need. Lord, help us to stand strongly in love. Help us to speak with grace. Help us to be true and loving at the same time. And let the chips fall where they may, but help us to stand always with you. We pray that we would be strengthened in grace to walk in newness of life. We pray this in your name. Amen. My brothers and